Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 294 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jerome Hardaway. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, go check out DevOps Remote Conf, devopsremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Dave Kimura. Hey, how's it going? Going all right. Did I totally slaughter your name? No, you nailed it. Awesome. I rarely do that. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, I'm David Kamira. I've been a Rubyist for about the past six to seven years. I run a screencast site, driftinruby.com, and I work for Sage Software. I've been there about uh, six, six, seven years as well. Wow. You're, you're like weird and stuff if you work for the same company for more than six months, right? <laughs> yeah, th that's what I seem to find in this industry. But, you know, uh, they've been good to me and I love my job. Well, there you go. Can't complain about that. Um, do you want to give people just a real quick introduction to what Drifting Ruby is, and then we'll jump in and talk about authentication? Yeah, absolutely. Drifting Ruby is a short screencast site where you can learn and watch videos online, just stream it right from your mobile device or computer, and to learn different tips and tricks about Ruby and uh, different things that you can do with the language and other frameworks. And the videos are all free, right? Currently, yes. We have about uh, 60 videos online, and you know, if the site ever goes down because it's hosted out in my basement right now, you can always go to the YouTube channel to watch them. I'll just go over to your house and shake the server. <laughs> Very cool. Well, um, I watched a couple of your videos on authentication and API stuff, and JWTs, and, and I keep hearing people talk about JWTs, and I, I get kind of how they work, but I'm I'm you know, it's like, okay, well, how do you do this with Rails? So I, I thought we could just get into authentic authentication in general and talk about the current state of authentication in Ruby and Rails, and then we can kind of bridge that into JWTs. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at hire.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. Well, I, I kind of... So I remember getting started doing like AuthLogic and um, HTTP basic authentication. And sometimes I still use HTTP basic auth because it's built into Rails. But uh, I have, I got into Devise and I just never kind of moved off of it. And I'm, I'm a little curious, like what's out there and, uh, you know, that maybe I'm not considering. And the other thing I'm, I'd also like to dig into is just basically how those authentication systems work. 
I was going to piggyback on that. Uh, device is pretty much where I stopped when it comes to learning about author authentication. Uh, you know, bad habits of uh, Rails developers is once you find something that works, you kind of like just stick with what you know. Yeah, and device is one of those monster beasts that you know it includes everything, including this kitchen sink. So, you know, if you try to just dive right into there, you're going to have a bad time. So. Um, the thing about device and it kind of is separate from a lot of other Ruby gems is that it's a rails engine. Mm -hmm. So there's so much under the hood that goes on, but if you break it down to its simplest core, it's simply using bcrypt to, uh, store your password. And then whenever you go to sign in, it takes your password and it encodes it or, you know, encrypts it with the bcrypt to see if the hashes match. So, um, it is a secure password authentication solution, and it's one that I personally use for a lot of projects. I think it's a lot of the extra uh, bells and whistles that a lot of people start getting confused about and how it's a mounted Rails engine and you know where to go from there. Right. Yeah, it definitely does everything I want it to, and that's, that's kind of why I pull it in. Um, and you mentioned Bcrypt, which is uh, the library for Bcrypt is built into Rails as well. And so you can just hook that up. If you want to build your own authentication solution, you can just do that. So the, the basics of the authentication solution is usually you have a username or an email address and a password. And Correct. And they hash the password. Sometimes they have a salt, which is just a random collection of characters that go on the end of it. Yeah, so when the bcrypt stored, uh, there's a, a strength of the password sort. So the higher the number the more complicated it's going to generate the hash and the more CPU cycle. So that helps uh, protect against any kind of brute forcing if someone does happen to get access to your database. Within the uh, bcrypt, it also stores the salt within the password. So I believe it's all separated out by dollar signs within the actual string. So you have, your, you have the strength and then the salt and then the actual hash of the password. So... Uh, it's not uh, with Bcrypt. It's not something that can be reversible, and it changes over time, or it changes as uh, the password is salted. Right. And the reason you want the salt is um, just to give an example. The so Adobe was hacked. There have been a bunch of other hacks over the last few years, and they didn't salt their passwords. And so essentially, what the hackers could do is, if they knew what, um, well, they could just look and see how many people had the same password. And then they could prioritize cracking those ones because if they could crack it, then they had access to a thousand or two thousand people. And so if you salt all of your passwords, then they're all going to be different, even if they're the same password. So authentication, I think, is pretty straightforward. You have a session on the back end, then um, at least this is typically how I've seen it done in Rails. You have a session on the back end, and then there's a cookie on the front end that uh, tells it which session to connect to. Yeah, and one of the nice things I like about Rails is that they do take a lot of assumptions in mind of best practices. However, they leave it open to your own configuration. So if you want to store your sessions in a Redis uh, cache system, you're able to do that fairly easily. Or if you want to uh, just have it all cookie-based or even require it to be served over SSL, you know, using the uh, secure true in the uh, sessions. All right, well, my question is, because you just mentioned several. For those that, for the newer uh, devs, which is the most, 
I guess enterprise preferred method. What is the best way? What is the, uh, I guess, the Rails way? If you're building your Rails app and you want to make it production quality, what would be the way that you would prefer between SSL or uh, the other ways you mentioned? I think it really depends on your application and how you want the functionality to work because with something like a Redis store for your sessions, then you can essentially clear that Redis database and then kick everyone out of your system. So that could have its own merits if you need it. Uh, I think the default way with cookies, if you know we're not talking about any kind of API interface, then using a cookie storage is typically you know your standard de facto. However, it really depends on your situation and what kind of application you're building. Yeah, I think the default cookie store as well. Um, I mean, if they clear their browsing data, then they're logged out. I guess that happens anyway, though. Um, but the other thing is, is that uh, I have seen some security issues over the years with cookie-based stores. So, you know, depending on how critical the data is on the back end and things like that, yeah, you may want to look at having a a server-based session so that people can't spoof the traffic or anything like that. Yeah, and I've also played around with um, <clears throat> uh, RDS session storage, you know, actually storing the sessions within your database, and that becomes pretty unmanageable to a certain point just because of the sheer size and the amount of reads and writes you're doing to the database. So, you know, while it is another option, that's one that I usually don't like unless if I need a accurate count of who is truly logged in, how long they've been logged in and stuff like that. Yeah, I've used that on some of my apps, but, you know, I only had a few hundred people using it, and so it wasn't a big deal. Once we got over, you know, a, a few thousand, then, it, yeah, it really started to have an effect. We could see it impacting things. And once you get more than that, then you're really feeling it. So, um, so yeah. So then this, I don't know how new they are, but uh, JavaScript web tokens. And, and I see these used um, both for regular authentication, like what we're talking about, and for APIs. Do you want to explain how those work? Uh, the JWT, uh, some people pronounce it JOT, but I prefer to just say JWT because it sounds more, I don't know, just how it reads better to me. But you basically... How you get JOT out of that? I have no idea. You know, I was watching a couple of screencasts on it, and people said, oh, it's pronounced JOT. I'm like... I'm not sure where you get to that, but, you know, hey, that well, works. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> <laughs> the J says J, the W, uh, and then the T says T. So J, anyway. No, nah, yeah. not going to do that. <laughs> so the basic, <laughs> the basic anatomy of a JWT token is... You have your header, and that's going to have your algorithm and the type that you're using. So whether you're using a RSA token with a private key and public key to encrypt the data. Second? When you yeah, say sure. header, is that your HTTP header? No, it's the actual uh, body of the token. Okay. So the token is broken up into three separate parts. You have your header, your payload, and then okay. your signature. And the header is where you actually have the the type of algorithm that you're storing, okay. the payload is going to have all the different, uh, you know, like a JSON key value of the different data that you're passing through. 
and then your verify signature is how you're going to be able to encrypt and decrypt that data. Gotcha. So th is this generated by the server or the client? Or? It's a bit of both. The client side will use the uh, signature to encrypt the data, so it sends it back over, so the payload's not in plain text. However, the server side also has the control to encrypt and decrypt the data, so you're able to um, work with it on the server side. And so this is a way of just securely sending data back and forth? Absolutely. So uh, what, what other technologies would you, could you use in, the, in its place to give people an idea of, oh, this fits in the stack in this spot? So is it just an API protocol like REST, or is it something you stick on top of REST as a security layer? It is something that you stick on top of REST as a security layer, and I would say if you're developing an application that is passing any kind of sensitive data, then you should use a uh, JWT token or a JWT. Uh, I think that it's, if you're developing an iOS app, Android app, any kind of mobile device that's communicating with your API backend, or if you're just wanting to have a open API for your end users, then using the JSON web tokens is going to not only provide you the authentication uh, source as you're not just allowing anyone to openly communicate with your API, but then you can also do certain kind of things around that with uh, limiting the requests, uh, throttling the requests so someone's not hammering your server intentionally or unintentionally. So how do you set up your Rails server to use JWTs? I know you have a video on this, but maybe you can just tell us real quick. Yeah, there's a few different ways. Uh, I think one of the standard ways is a gem called Ruby-JWT, and it's a pretty uh, standard and just very open to interpretation gem where you actually specify your your uh, your algorithm they're going to use, your encoding key or your uh, RSA public key and private key, um, and it's been it's been a pretty stable and it's been around for several years. So if I were to build a full blown API application, that would probably be one of my go to gems. And it's something as simple as you listen for a request, whether it's a sign in session to handle the authorization of the token. The user would provide their username and password, and then you verify that it's the correct information. You can then send a response or a, a web token, a JSON web token, back to the client. For each subsequent request that the client is accessing on a secured backend, then they would pass that token in in the header, and that that would basically be your authorization every time. Because when you're talking about an API, you're, it's really a stateless session, mm -hmm. or it's uh, stateless, so there is no session. So the server has to re-authenticate on every single request. That makes sense. So, Jerome, do you have any questions, any other questions about JWTs or authentication, or you know, do you have any experiences you want to share before we move on? Because I kind of want to start complaining, I mean, talking about uh, authorization. Uh, negative. I actually, I, the one uh, question I did have, he already explained. So I'm uh, pretty clear. I, I actually want to get into authorization as well. 
All right, so um, so let's do it. I'm just going to preface this by saying I hate hate authorization in Rails. Um, you know, I've used all kinds of different gems. They all work differently. Usually, what what winds up happening is I wind up with this gigantic file with a whole bunch of permissions listed in it, and it's essentially just a list of if, if statements. I mean, can can comes to mind as an example for, of this, and yeah, it just you know it. It, it turns out to not do everything I need, or it's really complicated to come up with the conditions that allow people to access stuff. And so I'm curious, you know, is, is there a, a better way? Uh, there's always a better way uh, to do something. <laughs> and, you know, I think for each developer, it's going to be finding your niche and how, how are you going to be able to maintain this down the road? So that was one of the biggest gripes I had about Ryan Bates's original CanCan is that you had this one huge file that was hundreds, thousands of lines long, and it was just unmanageable to do any kind of real structuring. I think I lost you're being your super, video. I, I turned it off. Okay. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I think you're being nice about CanCan. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, if I had a really simple app and it was like, okay, well, check if they own this group or check if they have permission, you know, or if they have this role, you know, and I had a handful of those, no big deal. But if, as soon as the application got complicated, ugh, it was a, it was a pain. And, you know, and yeah, I'd wind up with this thousand line file and I'd, you know, I'd have to do a text search anytime I wanted to change something. And yeah, the maintenance on it just got to be a real nightmare. And I've tried a few others. I've tried Pundit and I've tried... Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that I've used, but I almost inevitably wind up just going to my own system because nothing does exactly what I want. You know, I'm a big fan of Pundit, and that's what I use for most of my applications. But when we talk about authorization, it really is multiple different uh, points. You have... In its simplest terms, you have the authorization on is a user allowed to perform this action? And then you have a model level authorization where is a user able to write to this variable? Because you definitely want to protect against any kind of mass assignment within your application. Or you'll end up with that uh, issue that GitHub had a few years back where they allowed someone to mass mass assign the admin privilege to their app. To GitHub, yeah. and that was a pretty horrible thing. You know, I remember that. I'm like, oh my gosh, GitHub's going to go out of business. The world is ending, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh no, we fix this. Uh, our bad. But it's one of those things where you know that should have been caught like super early on in its development cycle, and it was just a major oversight. So uh, I'm glad they got a fix because I still use GitHub quite a bit. But so we had these two different uh, levels. So for your controller and your action level, I do use uh, uh, Pundit. And I think it's uh, very well laid out and structured where you have basically a policy file for each one of your controllers. And then you have a method within this policy file for each one of your actions. So it segregates it fairly nicely. And to go beyond that with the models and the attributes that you're wanting to allow access to, you know, you really don't have access to your current user within the uh, model, and nor should you, because you should maintain a, a single responsibility of your models. 
However, I will use strong parameters to limit what users have access to uh, depending on their level of access within the system. So that can introduce roles. You can uh, roll your own uh, role system, or you can use something like Rollify to say that we have admin users and client users. Um, within that, you can then say the strong parameters is an empty array. I'm then going to inject in these uh, these attributes if you're an admin user, or I'm going to inject in these privileges or attributes if you're a client user. So it definitely adds a level of complexity to your application. However, I, I do think that it is still very well laid out, especially if you extract your strong parameters into its own uh, model and then inherit and then check against that when you're actually saving or inserting in your records. That's interesting because it sounds like you're using different solutions for different levels. And I, I think that's where a lot of my solutions actually fell apart was just that I wanted to rely on Pundit or um, CanCan or there's another one that I used and I can't remember the name of it right now. But I just wanted it to kind of control everything at all levels and it just... You know, it didn't. It worked great at the controller level and then, um, you know, less great in other places. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if I would really want Pinet to be my go-to solution for all of the authorization because that's putting a lot of faith into one single gem. Uh, and I think that having the extraction of the model attributes to be able to say these users are allowed to edit these certain attributes is a good thing. I don't think it should be, you know, Pundit decides all of this, it's all thrown into this policies file because then you're going to get overwhelmed with what is um, your methods within this uh, policy file would get astronomical because not only do you have to put in your business logic for is the user allowed to perform this action, then you're also adding in is this user allowed to edit these attributes. And I think that if a standard user is going to have access to these attributes, then they're always going to have access to these attributes. You know, don't repeat yourself in every single model where it reappears. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I can see not wanting to put all of the permissions into like a policy file in Pundit, but what I'm I'm curious about is um, I do like having one place to go to, you know, or one standard place to go to to edit this stuff. So I mean, be it the same method on every controller, or you know, the same method on every model, or something like that. Um, but yeah, um, and so I just assumed well, it'd be nice to also do it all the same way. And so, you know, having Pundit at the controller level and at the model level would have been nice. But yeah, I can, I can definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, and typically, I usually break the whole MVC structure of a Rails application and go beyond, you know, just your controllers folder, your models folder, and your views folder. I'll have one for services, one for the policies, one for my allowed parameters, so I keep everything kind of segregated in its own nice, tidy folder. That makes and sense. I know whenever I go to a different responsibility, then I'm able to quickly and easily find what file is actually responsible for that request or that action. So, you know, my policies, that's where I saw all my pundits. And then my allowed parameters is where I saw 
that's where I saw all of my allowed attributes based on the user logic, you know, which user is it and stuff like that. So I think, you know, having that level of segregation is going to make it easier to maintain. Um, also allow for uh, better collaboration with other people. So you don't have everything in one huge ginormous file. You know, you're going to mm -hmm. get merged con conflicts of hell there. <laughs> Totally agree on the uh, on that. Trying to keep everything as small and uh, user friendly, well, developer friendly as possible. Uh, I've I've had that experience of going into a project and like, oh, this file is huge. Where do I start? Where's the problem? Oh my goodness, I'm I'm lost. So <laughs> yep, you know, definitely like that uh, that line of thinking. So uh, what about testing all this stuff? You know, and and we didn't talk about testing with uh, authorization or JWTs either. But how do you test that somebody is logged in and has the right permission to do the right stuff? Wait, I thought TDD was dead. <laughs> it was a fat diet. <laughs> TDD is nowhere near dead. <laughs> That's all they ask for these days. Yeah. Well, well uh, since I'm not a fat dieter, I write my tests after. Actually, I still write them. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> You know, it really depends on my situation. On a lot of personal projects, I'll, uh, I have the time and I have my resources to be able to write my test first and then to actually check make sure things are working the way it is supposed to. I am a little bit old school, so uh, I do like using my browser for testing and stuff like that, but also use, um, you know, fixtures and RSpec for doing some testing where... Uh, I can create the same user on each one of my tests, and uh -huh. then I'm able to uh, test against those cases. So I think no matter what you're doing, whether you're actually writing your unit tests uh, beforehand or afterhand, you're still testing it on a browser. You're still doing some sort of testing. It may not be automated. However, I think you know everyone needs to test their application before they push it to production. So, Yeah, that makes sense. So do you, are, are there specific libraries for like Copybara or something that will um, simulate JWTs or, um, you know, simulate the authentication or do you just do that all by hand? I really just do it all by hand, uh, you know, either through uh, just my browser testing or Postman, which is a, uh, it's a free app out there that you can use for testing JWTs, and they actually have a runner within there that you can create, which is really kind of cool. And it's great for testing out um, uh, API applications or API-only apps because you can actually set a workflow. It'll run through the workflow. You put in the uh, expected responses, and then you can see if you have pass or fails. So it is actually a great way to write tests for an API-only application. However, you know, it's not something that you really check into your version control uh, along with the rest of the Rails application. Or at least, you know, I haven't messed around with it too much to really have that kind of need yet. And it's called Postman? Postman. Postman. Okay. Gotcha. Any other tools that you're using for this kind of thing that you want to talk about real quick? Uh I did find one other one. It was here. Hold on. Let me look back at my notes. You know, I really don't memorize everything I do on programming. So, you know, a lot of these drifted Ruby Railcasts are 
for my own reference as well. So uh, it's one of those funny, you know, I'm trying to help other people out while I'm helping myself out. So there is a Chrome extension called Advanced REST Client, and that's what I use in the video to test out the J uh, JSON web tokens okay. and to test and make sure that we got our token back and then communicate with the API. All right. Do you want to put a link to that in the chat and that way we can get it into the show notes? Absolutely. Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know, all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration. And I recommend SnapCI. SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks. And it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails, and overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. So, Jerome, what do you think about all this? I'm sorry, I haven't had it on mute. I'm actually writing down stuff as he's saying it, like <laughs> I'm posting. You know, I end up learning so much and hearing things that I hadn't thought about that I like. Let me take the notes on that. Let me. Uh, I want to hear. I want to do more discovery on that on my off time. So, uh, I'm definitely. <laughs> I'm just learning and just absorbing everything. Uh, I'm liking everything I hear. I would like to ask a few more, a uh, few questions about uh, drifting Ruby. Though that's okay. Yeah, do it. All right. So I want to know, like, first and foremost, I like drifting Ruby. It's one of those, from what I've seen. I when it comes to screencasts, it's really, uh, it's really on the ball. I guess is the way to say that. Uh, best thing I like about it, I went through uh, actually a lot of your uh, stuff that you have on there, a lot of your screencasts. And you're one of the first few people when it comes to Railcast or RubyCast to actually talk about JavaScript. And it's really rare because people, uh, especially in the Ruby or Rails community, forget that, you know what, we still at some point usually are going to have to mess around with JavaScript or JSON or, or something JavaScript-like, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, whatever you want to, uh, whatever your flavor of dealing with JavaScript is. So... Uh, that was a really impressive. Oh no! What gave you the inspiration? Like, what were you doing a year ago? And you're like, you know what? I'm gonna make a Rails app, but I'm gonna do screencasts and you know share my thought process of building stuff. You know, there's definitely been a void since Ryan Bates left the scenes, and he was a huge inspiration and help to me uh, several years ago. So. Um, it's really something, my inspiration behind it is to really give back to the community. Uh, and I really want to keep it free as long as I can. So I want to keep doing weekly screencasts and, you know, make them freely available for as long as I'm able to. I am starting to see some charges incur, so um, I'm not going to be able to keep that up for too long, you know, having three kids and a wife and stuff to keep happy as well. So, um, you know, but... I don't think JavaScript is anything to be afraid of. I think that it is, whether using just vanilla JavaScript or jQuery, it's a pain in the butt. I don't love it like I love Ruby. However, I think that it's a very integral part of web development, You know, especially now nowadays where 
you know, the whole hype of disabled JavaScript or you're going to get hacked in your browser is kind of over. And now it's just kind of one of those accepted evils that everyone, you know, allows. It's nothing to be afraid of. And from a development standpoint, I think it fits uh, really nicely into a Rails application, especially with TurboLinks and just the unobtrusive uh, JavaScript. I think that when we start getting into web frameworks, you know, whether it's uh, Angular, Vue.js, or React, then that kind of turns into a whole different story. Um, yeah, I'm I'm an Angular guy. I mean, I I enjoy it. I have a podcast about it. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's just. I'm, go ahead. I'm so happy Jason isn't here because I like Angular, and like I absolutely like I love Angular. But I also I'm falling more in love with React more when it comes to Rails, and like I think it's mostly because of supply and demand. Our students end up liking uh, React on Rails a lot more than it is with like putting Angular on Rails because it's easier. But I like the I don't know I just like the setup and you know using Angular cards and things of that nature. But it was very interesting when you said that because you were starting talking about frameworks and it's a different beast. Uh, but the now, one of the main survival tips that we're learning when it comes to Rails and being in the uh, being professional in Rails is learning how to use these front-end JavaScript frameworks with Rails. That seems to be the biggest craze. Like the only way to continue outside of like some pure Rails apps, most of the Rails apps are going towards the path of using uh, JavaScript front-end frameworks. So I want to know what is your uh, what's your thoughts behind that? You know, for every application I've developed so far, I think that and you know some of these apps are getting a lot of traffic. Some are dead in the water, but the ones that are getting a lot of traffic, uh, there there hasn't been a need for any kind of client side framework or you know JavaScript framework. So you know I'm really trying to. Uh, I don't even want to say, you know, um, I won't drink the Kool-Aid because I, I am very interested in some of these frameworks. But I think there's just way too many of them right now. Uh, we just we're right in the middle of that bubble explosion of JavaScript frameworks. And until I see one that's really mature and that has really um, taken a uh, strong foothold, you know, I really haven't invested into any one of them yet. You know, I have played around with the original Angular before 2.0 came around. However, I think that uh, I actually had a dream about this last night, you know, because I was watching some videos and was playing around on the computer last night. And then I just had this um, dream last night after, you know, if you do something for too long or too much, then you start having dreams about it. And that's when, you know, you probably have a problem. Well, I had this dream about Vue.js and just, you know, it was all bells and whistles and glory and clouds and all this crazy stuff. So, you know, now I have just this uh, subconscious desire to really check out uh, Vue.js and really to see what it's all about. So I might actually have some Drift and Ruby screencasts coming up on that soon just from this, you know, obsession. But, um, Firstly, you know, I think called a nightmare. <laughs> code. Anytime you're asleep and you're seeing code, it's called a nightmare. Uh, you need to take five. <laughs> but really, yeah. seeing that video. Yeah, you should yeah. definitely check out View. Though um, we had Evan on JavaScript Jabber, and 
it's it's a really interesting look at you know just another way to do things but uh, i find that you know react is is definitely getting there as far as maturity goes uh, angular 2 is there as far as maturity goes so i mean you know we all have our preferred flavor but at the end of the day i think a lot of them really just provide what you're looking for there and it just comes down to okay what are the capabilities and the trade-offs between this one and the other one and then which one do i like coding in better yeah absolutely and I think that, uh, you know, I've never actually refactored an application from using just a Rails-only uh, front-end, just using the action view, to a Angular or a Vue application. So, you know, I'm thinking about um, making a series just about, hey, I have this, you know, semi-complicated application. Now, how do we actually migrate over to a client-side framework? Because I, I think that that would be a very interesting topic because anyone who is really interested in learning a JavaScript framework, chances are they are already developing with ActionView and they've already kind of made that commitment to it. So seeing what it would actually take to go from uh, one evil to another evil or you know however you want to put it, I think would be really interesting. Because mm-hmm. most of the tutorials out there, you see it's, here is this beautiful JavaScript framework. Here's how you work with it. Oh, if you have an existing application, well, you just want to rewrite the whole thing and just start with this other beautiful JavaScript framework. So I think having, you know, just a, um, I don't even want to call it an upgrade because I'm not convinced it is an upgrade yet. <laughs> you know, I, I still, I'm in love with TurboLinks. I think it's amazing. Um despite what Aaron Patterson says about it. I think it's uh, really awesome, and it has definitely a lot of potential, especially with the most recent version with 5 and being able to uh, develop your iOS app or Android app really tying into TurboLinks. So I think you know I'm not quite ready to jump on the JavaScript framework bandwagon yet just because I have this whole... Uh, native mobile app uh, side of things to explore with TurboLinks. But I think once, you know, that itching is taken care of, then I'm going to focus a bit on some client-side frameworks. That's interesting. It's it's funny, too, to just see where everybody's at with this because, yeah, I mean, the adoption is all over the place. Some people are so deeply into a particular framework, and then other people, you know, they're they're kind of where you're at, and it's like, you know what? I'm pretty happy with what Rails gives me, and I'll try it out when I... Try it out. And yeah, you know, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what you need and um, what you feel like your pain is. And yeah, if it's if, if you don't feel like you have that pain, then I can definitely see a place where you're going, yeah, maybe I don't need a front-end framework. Is there- I miss the days when you didn't need it. I miss the days <laughs> when you did. Yeah, like the demand is so high. It's like, uh, you get from wanting to just focus on Ruby and Rails mastery and learn everything you can about Ruby language and Rails and all these neat little tricks to, oh, okay, now I have to focus on mastery of React. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing out there in the industry is they want people who are really who are really skilled in React when it comes to those type of uh, talent. And we're like, but React has been around for two years, so how are you going to you know, ask for a senior React developer when React's been around for two years. That's crazy. So when it comes to teaching, we're always like, uh, the industry's killing us when it comes to having to deal with this stuff. 
So Dave, I have another question for you really quickly, and that is, um, so you've talked about how you're basically content with what is available in Rails now. Where do you think the future is with Rails? Do you think it's going to move in the direction of um, providing a backend for these front-end systems, or are they going to continue to iterate on a lot of the things that make building, you know, just full-on Rails apps with no or very little front-end framework magic involved easier? I think it's going to be the latter. Uh, whether they're going to add in something like Webpack or uh, something else into the Rails core, you know, I, I don't think it's really going to go to a full-fledged uh, JavaScript framework instead of the Action View. Uh, I think Action View provides so much uh, just already that there really isn't a need you know, right now. So, you know, at the end of the day, you really have to decide who is your target audience for a, when you're developing your application, because if you know that your target audience is going to be elderly people, whether, um, you know, whatever your uh, web application is, then chances are they may not have the latest and greatest computers. They may not be fast enough. And when you start adding in stuff like a JavaScript framework, you're leveraging a lot of more of the CPU cycles onto the client side than the server side. So there's, go there's going to be a give and take. And I think no matter which way it goes, you always have to develop your application that fits your target audience. Very cool. Well, if people want uh, to check out what you're doing, follow you on Twitter, watch uh, 60 videos or so, what, where do they go? So they can go to driftandruby.com to check out all the available screencasts. And I have a couple of Twitter accounts. My personal Twitter account that I tweet random jokes and silly stuff on is Cobalts, K-O-B-A-L-T-Z, and then Drift and Ruby on Twitter. Raj, uh, I have one question. I actually made it my 2017 uh, resolution to ask every person to show this. Uh, Charles and Jason and I, we did a show some time ago about is Ruby dying? And I wanted to get your insight on it. Like, do you feel like Ruby is dying or Ruby has staying power? Well, um, even in the show, we spoke some about JavaScript. So do you feel like we're going to, like, do you feel like we still have that fight in us to keep going on for uh, years and years um, from now? You know, it's a, that definitely is a loaded question. I don't think it's dying. You know, if it was, then I'd be learning Elixir or something else. So I think it definitely still has a lot of potential. And it may even come to a, a point where computers are getting faster and faster, which means inherently Ruby is going to get faster and faster because it's able to solve the same problem quicker. However, I think, you know, then you can introduce something like the Crystal language that's really trying to mimic uh, much of the Ruby code base is possible, but it's a compiled language, so it's inherently going to be magnitudes faster than a scripting language. So we could see a shift where a lot of developers who are just diehard Ruby move more over to the Crystal language just for that extra, you know, basically free speed boost. However, I think we're still going to have this uh, main Ruby core. And I think that while Ruby is currently most common uh, commonly found in web development, I think that it has so many applications outside of web development that people are beginning to explore as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, insight. 
Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from The Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jerome, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes, sir. Uh, I uh, My first pick is going to be Action Cable Rails Spy uh, by Michael Hartle. I think that is a really good uh, book or something for people who are just getting into the Rails 5, uh, starting to learn uh, the transition from Rails 4 to Rails 5. So please uh, check that out. And uh, my second pick is uh, SRE Conf. Uh, I've been selected to be one of the speakers for SRE Conf in San Francisco. So we're going to be. I'm going to be doing my talk uh, from combat to code, telling, you know, telling, educating people about how how um, open source has helped veterans transition out of the military into the civilian sector. So if you're going to be in the SF area, please check me out. Super cool. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here. Uh, the first one is um, I've been watching a TV show that I really enjoyed the first couple of times I watched it, and I got back into it again. It's Battlestar Galactica. It was made in 2003. <laughs> you know, this is not a new show by any means, but uh, really, really been enjoying that. And uh, it, yeah, so that's just a TV show I'm going to pick. Um, the second thing I'm going to pick is um, on the JavaScript and uh, Angular podcasts I do, I pulled together a second episode, and I'm thinking about doing it for Ruby Rogues, um, but I'd like some feedback, and because it's going to take more time, you know, I'm also looking at getting sponsors for it just you know, to help cover the costs of myself or other people coordinating that. Um, but what, what I've been doing, and you can go listen to some of these, including... Um, I just interviewed Isaac Schluter, who's uh, the CEO of NPM Inc. Um, if you use NPM, he and his team are behind that. Very interesting. Uh, after this show, I'm going to be talking to Michael Rogers, who is the maintainer of Node.js, um, also for JavaScript Jabber. Um, and I'm working on getting things lined up with members of the Angular core team for um, Adventures in Angular. But it's, it's, my, it's a My Story episode. And so I start out talking to them about how they got into programming and then how they got into JavaScript or Angular, depending on which show it is. Uh, then we start talking about some of their community contributions, um, and then finally we, we talk about what they're working on now, and then we do some picks. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you can definitely go check those out, those first episodes of both of those. Um, so it's going to be two episodes of each show every week, and one will be the regular panel show, and the other one will be my story show. Um, so if you're interested in those, you can definitely go check them out, javascriptjabber.com and adventuresinangular.com. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm thinking about doing it for Ruby. So if you're interested in that or interested in sponsoring a show like that, then let me know. Um, and you can just email me, Chuck, at devchat.tv. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? All right. Since you brought TV into the mix, uh, I'm not a big TV person, but one show that I'm just completely obsessed with that I've watched literally uh, three times every episode is Doctor Who. It is show. definitely a favorite of mine. And I tell you what, one of my greatest accomplishments. Uh, sorry, remove that bit. 
One of my greatest accomplishments in life is I've got my wife to watch Doctor Who with me, and she has made it through six seasons of the 2005 Doctor Who. So it's totally awesome. Uh, she got really mad when David Tennant died and Matt Smith took over, so we kind of stopped watching it together at that point. However, um, I still have plans to get her back into the loop. And my second pick, it's more of a just an encouragement. You know, if anyone out there listening, go to a meetup and learn and meet with other people because, you know, developing by yourself is uh, definitely very uh, efficient. However, meeting with other people and really just collaborating with them, getting to know people in your area who have a similar interest in you can definitely be a uh, energy boost that you may be looking for in your development life. I can second that. Um, when I got started with my career, one of my friends told me to go out to a meetup group, and that made a huge difference in just being able to figure things out, take off, make sure I felt like I knew stuff and, and knew where to go for help. So, yeah, definitely do that. And if you're an experienced person, um, there's still a lot to be gained there, just from getting to know people and learning new things and staying current. So, yeah, again, plus one there. All right, Dave. Um, well, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll catch you all next week. All right. Thank you very much. That's right. Thank you, Dave.